Open your Bibles to uh, John chapter 20 this morning. We return again to the scene of the empty tomb this morning. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 18. It's the second part of something we began last week. Titled this section, The Tomb is Empty, How Will You Respond? Last time, as we were sort of setting the context for all of this, we noted the fact that the crucifixion shattered the little band of disciples. Previously, they uh, had been arguing amongst themselves, even as late as the Last Supper itself, arguing amongst themselves as to uh, who would be greatest in the kingdom of God. They, um, they also were assuring Jesus, one after another, that they would give their very lives to defend him. They had pledged that to him, and yet Jesus himself had warned them, quoting the prophet Zechariah, strike down the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. And that's indeed what happened when he went to that Roman cross. There were none of the disciples to be found there save one, John, Jesus' mother, and a couple of other women. The rest had been completely demoralized, shattered and scattered by the crushing reality that all of their hopes and dreams and messianic expectations had come to a cruel end on a Roman cross. Well, now as dawn begins to break, Sunday morning there are a few women that are on their way to the tomb carrying some spices with them. Their intentions are to further anoint the body of the one whom they loved. Before this day is out, every one of those disciples but one will encounter the risen Jesus Christ in a way that is so significant that it will change their lives forever. The consequences of the empty tomb will come crashing in on them. So as we look at this passage, verses 1 through 18 this morning, we're going to note three dramatically different reactions to the empty tomb so that we might examine our own response to this most amazing reality. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came early to the tomb while it was still dark, saw the stone already taken away from the tomb. So she ran and came to Simon Peter and the other disciple whom Jesus loved and said to them, They have taken away the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. Peter, therefore, went forth and the other disciple, and they were going to the tomb. And the two were running together, and the other disciple ran ahead faster than Peter and came to the tomb first. Stooping and looking in, he saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he did not go in. Simon Peter, therefore, also came following him and entered the tomb. And he beheld the linen wrappings lying there and the face cloth, which had been on his head, not lying with the linen wrappings, but rolled up in a place by itself. So the other disciple, who had first come to the tomb, entered then also, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. So the disciples went away again to their own homes. 
But Mary was standing outside the tomb weeping, and so as she wept, she stooped and looked into the tomb, and she beheld two angels in white sitting, one at the head and one at the feet, where the body of Jesus had been lying. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, Because they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. When she had said this, she turned around and beheld Jesus standing there and did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Hebrew, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Stop clinging to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brethren and say to them, I ascend to my Father and your Father and my God and your God. Mary Magdalene came and announcing to the disciples, I have seen the Lord and that he had said these things to her. Three dramatically different responses here in this section. Blindness, as we spent last week talking about. Blindness typified by Mary. The fact that she came to the tomb, she saw the fact that the stone had been rolled away. Her immediate conclusion, totally on the horizontal of life, was that that grave robbers had come and stolen the body. She gave no thought to the possibility of resurrection. It didn't even enter her mind. And throughout this remaining narrative, as we've seen, until Jesus himself rips the blinders off her eyes, all she can think about, all she can see is someone has stolen the body. Her affections for him, her horizontal thinking have blinded her to the reality. The tomb is empty. So she is characterized by blindness. But there are two other disciples here that are characterized by two other dramatically different reactions. Peter, with what I'm calling bewilderment, and John, with belief. Let's go ahead and follow Peter here under this heading of bewilderment. It's verses 3 through 7, and the scene is interesting as we look at those verses together. It's an action scene. What, What the narrator John paints for us, and he was there, is a picture of, of Mary coming to them in a very excited way and sort of, you know, I get the idea she's just kind of blabbering it out. You know, they've stolen his body. And so off they go for the tomb and they start walking. That's the picture. They're, they're walking together. And then I can just kind of imagine one of them walks a little bit faster than the other one. So the other one walks a little faster to keep up. And then one begins to trot and the other one begins to trot to keep up with him. And then pretty soon they break into a full foot race. Racing for the tomb. That's what it says here. Look, verse 4. The two were running together. The other disciple ran ahead faster than Peter and came to the tomb first. Now, John is younger than Peter. We know that. And so perhaps, you know, speed goes to youth. I don't know. But in any case, John manages to get there first. He arrives at the tomb and it says, look again, verse 5. He he stoops. he, He bends over to look in. These were not, Jesus was not buried in a grave as you and I are used to, not a hole in the ground in which they would lower a a casket or something. It was a a cave, either natural or artificially made, into the side of the rock. And there would be a relatively low doorway that you would have to stoop to get in, and then it would open up into a vaulted area. 
Normally there would be a, a, a bench or a table type uh, of an area that was carved out of the rock where they would lay the body. And that's where the body would, would be there in its linen wrappings and its spices and until the effects of nature were to take its course over a period of months. Eventually the tomb being reopened and then they would gather up the bones of the deceased and they would have these areas off to the side where they would have a bone box, an ossuary, and they would put their relatives' bones into that box and, and then they would be buried with their ancestors. That's what the terminology is talking about. So that's the kind of picture here. And John, he gets there. The stone has been torn away and thrown away, it says, verse 1. And so John, he kind of stoops down and he just looks in and, and he observes the linen wrappings. You see it, verse 5? He sees the linen wrappings lying there, but he, he doesn't go into the tomb. Now, we don't know exactly why at this point. Perhaps it's just out of deference to Peter. Peter is the leader of the apostolic band. John is swifter of foot, but Peter is clearly the leader. And so he, he looks, but he doesn't enter. He waits outside the tomb. He's seen enough by looking in to convince himself that Mary's description is wrong. He sees the linen wrappings lying there, and, and with them would be the, the spices noted to be, in Roman pounds, a hundred pounds worth, a very large quantity and expensive contribution to Jesus' internment there. And, and he looks in and he sees all that, and so he's persuaded that it's not a grave robber, but he doesn't know what to make of it. So he's standing there looking in, and then arrives Peter. We love Peter. Impetuous Peter. Peter, the one who, you get the picture, he, he was always walking behind Jesus. And whenever Jesus would stop, Peter would step on the back of his sandal. That's Peter. He's so close to his Lord all the time. Peter's the one who asks the questions that you and I would have liked to have asked, right? But we were too afraid to ask the dumb question. And so Peter asked the dumb questions for us. Peter's the one driven by his passions. And so he arrives at the tomb again. Look what he does. Verse 6, Peter therefore came also following him and boom, he enters right into the tomb. He doesn't bother to stand on the outside, stoop and look in. He wants to know what's going on. So right into the tomb goes Peter. Verse 6, notice what he sees. Peter therefore also came following him. He entered and he beheld the linen wrappings lying there and the faith cloth, face cloth. Now, the, the, uh, the word translated beheld here, it is significant to us in the sense that what Peter, what it's communicating to us is, is that Peter studied what he saw. John stooped and looked in, and the Greek verb there just uh, communicates to us that he gave it a glance. He didn't give it a studied look. Peter goes in, and he's standing now in the vaulted area where he can stand up straight, and he's looking around. And he's taking in what he sees in, in its full detail. John saw only linen wrappings lying there. Peter sees the linen, linen wrappings, verse 7, and the face cloth. The point that's being communicated here is that, is that Peter studies what he sees and what he notices is that there is no evidence of grave robbery. In fact, just the opposite. There's a, there's a semblance of order. Everything's exactly in its place. The linen wrappings, they're not strewn about. It says they're lying there. The face cloth itself is rolled and laying in a place by itself, it says. 
It's not a scene of chaos. It's not a scene of confusion. It's a, it's a scene of tranquility, a scene of purpose. Something purposeful has transpired inside this tomb. Now, this face cloth that Peter notices, that, and the closest cultural connection for us would be a handkerchief. It would be like a, a, a common handkerchief for us, and it actually was used to wipe perspiration from the, from the brow of a workman. That's what it was. And what they would do with it is they would you know, turn it diagonally and roll it up, right? And then they would put it around the person's head and tie it on the top so that when they laid them to rest there, their jaw wouldn't fall open. That's what it was used for. And so Peter is looking here, and he sees the linen wrappings lying there, and he sees the face cloth rolled and in a place by itself, just sort of right there. Now, exactly what he saw, we can't say with certainty. I mean, the text is clearly communicating to us, I believe, that, as I say, it's a, it's a scene of order, it's a scene of purpose, not chaos, certainly not grave robbery going on here. No human being wrapped in grave clothes is going to leave that kind of order. If, if grave robbers came, they would, they would unwrap the body, or they'd either take it all, including the linen wrappings, to recover the spices themselves, or if they unwrapped the body for some reason, it would leave a pile of linen strips, which is what the body was wrapped in, laying, laying around inside the tomb. That's not what's communicated here. So it's, it's, it's very orderly what's going on here. Furthermore, if, if the, uh, the victim himself were to try to unwrap himself, if that were even possible, it would leave a, a disorderly, disheveled mess inside the tomb. None of that is what's observed here. Now, as a reader of John's Gospel, we can't help but let our mind reflect back to chapter 11. And so... We're going to reflect back to chapter 11 here. And the reason I want to take you back there is because there's another resurrection there. And the contrast between the result of that resurrection and the result of this empty tomb points out with great forcefulness the importance of the scenes being described for us here. John 11, verse 44 when the dead man, Lazarus, is called forth from the tomb, notice what it says, verse 44. He who had died came forth and bound hand and foot with wrappings, and his face was wrapped around with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, Unbind him and let him go. Lazarus was so bound in the grave clothes, the linen wrappings, and the face cloth, there was, he did not have the ability to, to extricate himself from them. Back to John and so when Peter enters this tomb and what he sees with his studied eyes is not a scene of disorder, not linen wrappings lying everywhere, certainly not a man who was able to extricate himself from such things. So, so much for the swoon theory that Jesus merely passed out on the cross and then later revived himself and undid his bandages and rolled back the stone and, and somehow crawled away later to die. What is being communicated to us here, I believe, in the text is that Jesus' body literally passed through the linen wrappings. That what Peter saw, what John saw when he peeked in, what Peter saw in a most studied way was the 
the linen wrappings lying exactly as they would have been when they were wrapped around the body, the rolled face cloth laying there as the head passed right through it. I believe what is being communicated here is that Jesus' body had literally passed right out of its grave crows, having no need for them anymore, through the tomb and to resurrection life. The tomb is empty. Peter, what do you make of it? What do you make of the evidence before your eyes, Peter? Well, we get help in Luke's gospel. Don't turn there, I'll just read it for you. It's one verse in Luke's gospel that helps us get an understanding into what's going on in Peter's mind at this moment. Luke 12 and or Luke 24 verse 12 it says Peter got up and ran to the tomb and stooping and looking in he saw the linen wrappings only and he went away to his home marveling or wondering at what had happened. Luke tells us that Peter's State of mind based on the evidence is he can't figure it all out. He's bewildered. He has studied it. He's seen it. He's convinced it's not grave robbery. But what it is, he does not know. It's clearly not grave robbers. Clearly the body's not there. But what happened, he does not know. Three times... In the last six months of Jesus' life, Peter, with his own ears, had heard Jesus say directly that I will be killed and I will rise again on the third day. Yet Peter can't put it together. Even Jesus' enemies remembered that Jesus had predicted it. And Jesus predicted it to them in, in figurative language. But they, in fear that the disciples might come and steal the body and bring true the prophecy, post a guard around the tomb. So his enemies have some inkling into what he was talking about. Peter is bewildered. Peter is bewildered. He cannot put it together. It's kind of like those hidden pictures for Peter. You know, sometimes you see those at a party game. And there's one in particular. It's a, it's a picture. And if you look at it one way, it's a, it's a witch, right? You know what I'm talking about? Somebody nod here, please help me on this. It looks like a witch, and then you look at it in a different way, and it's a beautiful woman. My problem is that, you know, for the longest time, all I could see was the witch. I mean, some people look at those things, and they immediately can see it. Others study it for a long time, and they just can't figure it out. They struggle with what's before their eyes. Peter is struggling here with what's before his eyes. He's bewildered by the empty tomb. Luke tells us again in Luke 24, verse 34, that later that same day, Jesus personally appears to Peter and transforms his bewilderment into faith. And from that point on, Peter is now a believer too in the resurrection. But at this point, in this time, Peter's reaction to the empty grave is bewilderment. Mary's reaction to the empty grave is blindness. And that leads us to the third dramatic response to the evidence before them, and that is belief. Verses 8 and 9. So the other disciple, the one who had first come to the tomb, entered then also, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. 
I believe John, now emboldened by Peter's entrance into the tomb, now goes in himself. That's what it says. He enters then also. Again, a different Greek verb used here that that carries a connotation of seeing with understanding. Before he stooped, he looked in, he, he glimpsed the evidence. He was convinced that it was not grave robbery, but he did not know what to make of it himself. Now he enters in. He looks more carefully. He sees with understanding. What does he see? He sees the same evidence that Peter had seen. He sees the linen wrappings lying there. He sees the cloth used to secure the jaw, the jaw, jaw laying by itself. And from that evidence that he sees before him, evidence that bewilders Peter, brings belief to John. What is it that he believes? What is it that he believes? Well, in context here, the only possibility of what he believes is that Christ has been resurrected from the dead. That Jesus Christ has been resurrected from the dead. Somehow, by the grace of God, John has managed to penetrate deeper into the meaning of the empty tomb than either Mary or Peter have yet been able to do. John believes. He sees the empty tomb. His conclusion is, Resurrection. Resurrection. Now he's ignorant. He's still ignorant of the hows and the whys of it all. He couldn't give you a a detailed presentation of all that has gone on here. All he knows is what he's seen, and he's convinced that it's resurrection. We know this to be true because later on that same day, John is with the other disciples when Jesus rebukes those disciples. For being hard of heart and doubting. John himself, he, he has a seed of faith here, but he not a mature faith. Fundamentally, he believes, but his, his faith is weak. But it's real. Reflecting back many years later, many decades later, John's gospel being written perhaps as late as the middle of the 90s, so he's reflecting back here for, for uh, over 50 years. Notice verse 9, what he reflects back on. Looking back to that day, remembering the fact that Peter was bewildered there in the tomb and the fact that he believed, but his faith was still young and weak. Notice what he says. For as yet they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise again from the dead. John says that Peter's bewilderment and his weak faith were due to the fact they were biblically ignorant. They were biblically ignorant. That was their problem. Now, that seems amazing to you and I, doesn't it? I mean, we have the full extent of God's revelation sitting here before us. We have God's explanation of the resurrection. We have the gospel accounts of the resurrection. And so we look at it and we say, how could they possibly miss it? How could Mary be so blind? How could Peter be so bewildered by what he saw? Why was John's faith so small and fragile? How could they be so lacking in their understanding? They weren't alone. The other disciples as well, right? The two on the road to Emmaus. What did Jesus say to them? Oh, foolish and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have said. 
And Jesus began to explain to them the Scriptures. The ten there in the upper room, Jesus again, Luke 24, as he speaks to them, he, he chastises them for being doubting, for being hard of heart. They should have known. They should have known. That day when Mary went to the tomb and saw the stone torn away, she should have known. When Peter entered the tomb and he studied with intensity the linen wrappings lying there in the rolled face cloth, he should have known. John to see the same evidence and believing, yes, but he should have believed at a deeper level. Should have known. Their ignorance made them culpable. And thus Jesus rebuked them for their biblical ignorance. I mean, you can see this coming, can't you? Are they so different than you or I? Can we not identify those of us who claim to follow Jesus Christ? Is not biblical ignorance something we struggle with? Let me put it to you this way with a, a couple of questions. When tragedy or difficulty hits your life, Are you at a loss to understand it and respond to it properly? Does it throw you for a loop? When things come upon you that are difficult or tragic, are you thrown for a loop? Do you find yourself bewildered, sort of living in a spiritual daze? Do you believe that God is still in control? He is sovereign and His providence is ruling over not just my life, but all the events around me. Do you believe that? But just barely, right? Just barely. You'll mouth it, but you act like it. Are we so different than them? Beloved, John tells us here in verse 9, You want to turn your bewilderment into belief? You want to turn your belief into bedrock? Then you must see life through God's perspective. It is only when we gain God's perspective on life and death that we begin to have the solid bedrock faith that we must have. These same men, one bewildered, one with seed faith, later would would give their lives or be willing to give their lives in the case of John the truth of the reality of the empty tomb. They were transformed. They turned the world upside down because they had become convinced of the reality of what's gone on. Now, exactly which Old Testament prophets, verse 9, that they says they did not understand the Scripture, exactly what it was they did not understand, John does not tell us. Perhaps it's a reference to Isaiah 53, verses 10 and 12, which speak of the ministry of the suffering servant or or his activity. And it it speaks of it in such a way that that it clearly implies that it's after his death that he does these things. And so perhaps Isaiah 53, 10 and 12 is in the minds. Maybe it's Jonah, chapter 1, verse 17, which speaks of the third day. Maybe that is what is referring to here. But I'll tell you one verse that I'm positive he's referring to here, and that's Psalm 16 and verse 10. Because Psalm 16, verse 10, speaks of Messiah's hope of resurrection. 
And later at Pentecost, when Peter preaches his powerful sermon, he draws on Psalm 16, verses 8 through 11, and makes it the foundation of his very sermon itself. Listen to what he says in Acts 2, verses 23 and 24. This man, delivered up by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. And God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. It was impossible for Christ to remain dead. It was impossible for the icy grip of the grave to hold him down. You know, it is fascinating, by the way, (coughs) that these early disciples, their belief in Jesus in the resurrection of Christ came before their understanding of the Scriptures. It was a seed faith. It was a weak faith. It it wasn't a fully orbed faith, but it was a faith. Mary here, right, she believes when Jesus appears and speaks to her. John believes based on the evidence he sees. Peter then believes later in that day when Jesus appears to him. So in all of these cases, they believe not yet understanding fully the Scriptures. What's the point? (coughs) The point is, is that they did not have an expectation of the resurrection. That it is only once they came to know the resurrection by their own personal witness of it that they then later came to understand the Scriptures' necessity or mandate that it happens. Verse 9, look at that. He must rise again from the dead. The Scripture says he must rise again. And the point where this is significant to you and me is that we don't have a personal encounter with the living Jesus Christ. He does not come and stand behind us and tap on our shoulder and call out our name, David, and we turn to him, Rabboni, and, and thus we believe. You and I, and I would dare say virtually everyone in this room, has never been to the empty tomb. You've never examined the evidence for yourselves. The linen wrappings are long gone. You are are dependent upon the testimony of the eyewitnesses to what they saw and revealed in the Scriptures. Their faith became solid. Their faith became fully orbed, verse 9, when they began to understand the Scriptures. You and I rely on their testimony in those same scriptures for our faith in Christ. We are dependent upon the same thing that they were dependent upon, an understanding of the Word of God. Beloved, Jesus died and took to himself the death that belongs to you and me. He died on that cross not for his own sin, but for yours and mine. He was nailed there for our transgressions. He did not deserve to die, and death could not hold him. Scripture is clear. He must, verse 9, rise from the dead. And the way that we come to a full understanding and embracing of the reality of his resurrection is to come to an understanding belief of the Scriptures that speak of it. Verse 10, the disciples went away again, it says, to their own homes. Peter still bewildered, John with infant faith. How do we apply all this in the time that remains? What do we do with all of this? As we spoke last time, we said Mary's blindness 
was a blindness based on her grief. That her eyes were on the horizontal, that, the, that the, the pain of life had obscured her ability to see the reality of the resurrection and challenged you when life is hard for you. When your life is unraveling, where are your eyes? Are they horizontal, seeing only what, what, what is capable by man, or are they lifted and elevated to see what God can and is doing? Are you blind like Mary? She responds with blindness. Peter responds with bewilderment. His eyes are not quite on the horizontal. His conclusion is that it's clearly not grave robbers, but he's not had his eyes lifted vertically, and so he doesn't really know what to make of what it is he has seen. The answer for him is just sort of strangely just beyond his fingertips. It's like he can almost reach out and touch it, but it's just too far. It's eluded him. What do you make of the empty tomb? What do you make of the empty tomb? Is it a puzzle for you in which you can't find the edge pieces? Is it just beyond your grasp? Or maybe you do have faith. But maybe your faith is like John's faith. It's a, it's a newly planted sapling, weak and unstable. Beloved, we can turn that sapling to a mighty oak. You can find the edge pieces to the puzzle. You can go from being blind to being able to see the reality of it all if you will but give yourself to the Scriptures. If you will but immerse yourself in what the Word of God has to say. There is your answer. There is your answer for life's Tragedies. There is your answer for life's uncertainties. There is your answer those of you who are not sure about the empty tomb. It's available to you in the Word of God. If you are bewildered, if you are blind, if you are weak, come to the Scriptures. Read and reread the Gospel of John. Look at verses 30, 31. Notice what he says here. Again, he's reflecting back and he writes, 50 years after the event, many other signs, therefore, Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these have been written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. A month or so ago, I communicated by email with a, with a man I'd never met. I had opportunity to communicate with him by email. He was struggling to, with his faith. He said he's not sure what he believes anymore. Dialogued a little with him on the email, and my, my help for him was to tell him to take the Gospel of John and to sit down and over the course of three days to read it through again. Just read it through and pray that the Spirit of God would open your eyes to see and understand what has been written there. I got an email back from him, and he said, My doubts are gone. My faith has now been reestablished. Beloved, our faith rests on an understanding of the Word of God. When we finish here together this morning, there will be some 
counselors over here by this lighted cross. If you have questions about what we've talked about today or other days you've been here, then you come and you speak to them. Let them open the word of God with you and resolve your questions. Or maybe you know your need of baptism and you've been delaying. You come and you talk to them about that too and let them open the Word of God with you and show you the necessity the Word of God places upon believers' baptism. Maybe you just want to unite with this fellowship and membership and you're not sure how to do it. Simple as that. You come and you talk to them and they'll explain to you the process. Beloved, you've heard the Word of God preached. Responsibility now lies with you to respond to what you've heard. Let's pray. Our Father God, may you drive the truth into our hearts this morning. May you open our eyes to understand the Scriptures. For we know, our Father, that therein lies the truth. The psalmist said, in your light we see light. Our Father, help us to give ourselves wholly to your word that you might draw us to Jesus Christ. We pray in his name. Amen.